0: to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Brian shares his winding path from a non-target school into an accounting role right after the financial crisis. First, he explains how he was able to pivot into RBC for a middle office accounting position. From there, we learn how he was aggressive in trying to get to the front office, the challenges he faced once he got there, and the subsequent jump into private equity at HIG Capital. Listen to hear why after years of struggling to get to the top of the mountain in finance, he left to go start his own company called LCS, a high-end maker of cool custom laces with NBA and MLB licenses. Check them out at LCS.com. Enjoy. All right, Brian, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Laces podcast.
1: Sure. Thanks so much for having me. It so would be great.
0: Pleasure. Yeah, it'd be great if you could just start by giving the listeners a short summary of your bio.
1: Sure. So um, I started my career in uh, in accounting. My uh, my father had guided me towards that. I was sort of uh, just like most of us, you know, younger kid without really any idea of what I wanted to do. Figured business made sense. Um, my dad had pushed me towards accounting. Um, I got my first job in two thousand and. Nine went well it started january 2010 but that was like i was just happy to get a job at that point because it was right after the crisis Mm -hmm. so for me it was just get in anywhere find some sort of public accounting job just so you can get some experience the money was less important it was just you know get get in there and at at that point i was still living the college life even though i was post-college i was living in an apartment with you know way too many people (laughs) almost treating it like a dorm Mm -hmm. um jumped jumped quickly from uh from accounting, um, liked the, the culture, you know, but didn't really like what I was doing. Um, didn't, didn't hate accounting as a technical um, function, but didn't really like being an accountant or an auditor or a tax person. So I jumped to uh, another firm, um, another public accounting firm. So it was at Marks Paneth and Shrone, then I jumped from, to JH Cohen. And there, I, um, I liked the culture a lot better, loved the people, um, but again, the work just was not doing it for me. I ended up switching from a tax group to an audit group and financial services audit group and literally did that with the hopes that I can transition that into something in finance. Obviously, in hindsight, it's very easy to see that it worked. But while I was doing that and making that decision, I had no idea that that was going to help me. And, you know, obviously that was the reason why I did it. But I was just a young kid and I was like, all right, I hope this works. Um, So I was able to use that six month period that I was in a financial services audit group As experienced to put on my resume to get a job at RBC within their middle office doing product control. So that was a a key step in using my accounting skills to get into the place I wanted to, even though it wasn't the function that I wanted to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, you know, I was amped. It was a better job with better hours, better team. Um, and it actually gave me, cause the job wasn't super hard. So it actually gave me, or too demanding, it gave me more time to study on my own. During that time, I was trying everything in math and finance just to learn skills, to see what I would liked. I remember I, uh, I started taking, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Khan Academy, basically mainly for yeah. high school and college kids. Yeah. And it, I learned like three levels of calculus in order to become a quant trader. And then I went to take a, uh, a course at Baruch College that was for literally people who had years and years of math experience. Yeah. And I got in and I just laughed and I was like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> Meaning I could do this if I want to pursue it, but I'm going to need a lot more of a background. Yeah. Um, so at that time, I was just within the bank. I would reaching out to quant traders and then I just kept on reaching out to different people, I reached out to traders, reached out to, you know, bankers. And I had met so many people because when you have an email within the bank, a cold email is totally different and holds so much more weight than it does if you're just a random Gmail just saying like, Hey, want to grab a coffee? So I was able to meet, you know, analysts, um, associates, VPs, directors, managing directors from every level and every part of the bank, Mm -hmm. you know, response rates were probably 50%. And of those I would actually convert into a coffee, probably like 75% of those. So I I kept a log at an Excel after every meeting just said how it went from terrible to amazing and just you know what I can take from them some people asked to grill me with, an, with questions on what I can get on in an interview and some of those I failed miserably but doing that um, and I had bothered HR quite a bit to, to be able to, to try and switch and I kept on having meetings with HR to the point where they were like all right this guy's pushing real hard and it got to a point where I think the first time I met with HR, they told me I wasn't ready. And by the end, after about nine months in, uh, in RBC, um, they knew I was ready. I knew I was ready. A spot opened up in campus recruiting. So I jumped in and, uh, and was able to interview. So I basically ha- I jumped straight into the super day because the first round they kind of was fit. So they already had yeah. known who I was. And I was very ready. I knew I had killed the interviews. And, you know, after that, they told me, like, great job on the interviews. We like when people raise their hand from the middle office, et cetera, um, you know, to try and uh, to show how motivated they are. And that turned into me joining the Leverage Finance Group in the in the summer analyst class, um, in the, uh, the the starting August analyst class for the two-year that's, program. That, just August. for everyone,
0: everyone listening, that's actually not a very easy transition to make, actually. Yeah. What, yeah, it, it, you have to be
1: really aggressive, like you were. It sounds like, yeah, but yeah, yeah. to I, a point I, of discomfort. Yeah, because I'm, yeah. I'm not. I, I am. I've become more of the aggressive type, but I don't like to bother people. And you have to bother a lot of people. Yes, and you have to be off-putting at times because putting myself in their shoes, I would have felt the same way. Like, you know, this guy's a little bit annoying. But if you do it just to the point before it's like too annoying, you uh, you know, you're able to maximize it. And I'd love to pat myself on the back, and I can a little bit and say, hey, you know, you you worked hard to get there, but there is a lot of luck involved. I could have done the exact same thing and met one different person or it would have been the wrong day for me or whatever it was. And there goes my chance. So there really is a a tremendous amount of luck, but the most important thing is putting yourself in a position to be lucky. So Mm -hmm. it's just like preparing yourself as much as possible so that when the opportunity does arise, you can capitalize on it. Um, You were at RBC
0: for, yeah, you're at RBC for a good run. Then, then what? Yes, I was an accountant
1: there for about a year. um, And then uh, joined banking for about three years. Unbelievable experience. Um, Had no life, but, you know, really, really learned way more. And also confidence wise, like I had come from, you know, I was an average student. Um, I was average at the prior jobs that I had. So I was kind of unsure that, you know, how well I would do. And then just, you know, after about six months plus, I, you know, started getting towards the top of my class and um, and I was interviewing for um, private equity jobs throughout and I was just shocked that people are able after three months to be interviewing and prepared and ready. Some people are and I know these days most people need to be in order to get those jobs. I was absolutely not ready at all. I couldn't even fake it. I was trying to fake it but the experience of those interviews really helped in in year one. Year two I was pretty ready but the things I was fighting against were having you know not been not gone to a target school I went to Queens College and that really does affect you Um, surprisingly SAT scores you know the people I was going up against were 14 1500s and I was significantly lower than that Mm -hmm. so you know everything was sort of going against me and I had a bunch of late rounders in my second year um, where I almost got something Um, and then in my third year I was sort of like all right this sucks like I might not get anything do I have to be a banker the rest of my life not that there's anything wrong with that (laughs) Um, but at that point I was just so prepared and I had such good experience and I was working for, um, you know, directly for a managing director, somebody above me got uh, left to go to a PE firm. So it opened up an opportunity for me Mm -hmm. to take on a lot more responsibility than I could even handle. But because the person above me was willing to take me under their wing, I just learned a lot really quickly. And at that point I was just going to a ton of interviews and I was killing a lot of them and some of them would turn me away for the wrong reasons, but I, you know, I understand it. And then, you know, HIG, um, I had a, a multiple rounds of interviews. I think I interviewed with like 15 people. I had like four rounds, model tests, you know, the whole deal. Um, and I actually asked them, they, they gave me an offer and asked them after, I'm like, why'd you hire me? And they said, they're like, we were torn because you have a very different background. I was also um, two to three years older than most of the people that were coming in because I'd started in accounting. Right. And they said, you know, it's nice to have diversity within the group, and your background is just obviously very different, and you know you're you're clearly a hard worker, etc so um I got an offer for a year and a half out. I asked if I could start early. They had said we can't because we have another class coming in, and then they came back to me like a week later and said, "We're selling a portfolio company if you want. We could use you to work for us and them. you know you'll be employed by them, but working for the um executive management team just preparing all the documents et cetera. so I was like, of course, that. I'd almost prefer that, you know, yeah. to be able to you have that done, You had
0: done your reps at banking enough. It was
1: year three, you were like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also, it's, it's not even just that it was like, because at times it was very intense. It was more, most people go to a PE firm and then they hope to get portfolio experience after that, maybe for a year, just to have the experience. So now I knew my private equity job was coming after. I knew this was going to be a year long or less of a commitment. Mm-hmm. And I just had the opportunity to actually see the sale process go through from where the sausage is made, you know?
0: Yeah. Very cool. So you did that for almost a year and then ended up starting at HIG. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about your, your time at HIG.
1: So it, it was an awesome experience. And most people who end up jumping into entrepreneurship do it because they hate their job, they hate working for people. You know, they they just can't deal with all the whatever it is. And mm-hmm. for me, it was not the case. I actually wasn't something I necessarily saw myself doing my whole life. But I was just the amount you learn when you first start, and that's probably for two, three, four, five years because of how much there is to learn it just makes it a really enjoyable job. And it's just very challenged. You know, you get paid relatively well and it's just like a good place to be. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit better than banking because when you're on a deal, it's a nightmare in terms of, you know, hours and what you're committing. But when you're not on a deal or it's holiday time, it's just, it's extremely loose and it's not like a FaceTime culture. I don't know if this is HIG relative to other firms, but you know, I found HIG was very, very just to the point and like, work your butt off and do what you need to do to get the job done. And we will not babysit you, you know? Um, but while I was there, I was spending a lot of time on my eventual, um, entrepreneurial activities. So I was not performing poorly by any means, but it was, I was sharing an office with, um, a guy who had started with me. He was um, one of the smartest guys I've ever met and he was doing really well. And he actually knew, everything obviously about my business and eventually told me he's just like yeah I think you're cut out for this and he ended up you know investing in uh, in the initial uh, f- you know family and friends around that that we did on, on the company but um yeah I was juggling two things so not only is it hard as a, an entry private equity associate to try and like get your bearing straight. But there were certain times where I would have to deliver on something and the quality would be a little bit less because I was just on the phone dealing with China and worrying about how our shoelaces came, you know, our company just came, everything came backwards and messed up. So,
0: so give people just who don't know what you, what, what your startup exactly. is. Exactly. It's just, it's give totally them, give different. Them a feel. Give them a Yeah. Feel totally different types across. of jobs. Like exactly. how, did you, how did you come across like even doing something like this and then tell people what it is, the name, where they can find it and stuff like that. The, the company yeah, yeah the company
1: so the company is called LCS um, we are building a a brand, a lifestyle brand around starting around shoelaces, so the reason why I say lifestyle brand and not just calling us a shoelace company is because it's really brand first and it's our content first and know everything that we put out there is it should be no matter what product we're selling that we should be able to leverage our system in order to do that so it's really the aesthetic of the brand you know who how we do our photo shoots how we you know how do we edit our marketing and pre and post et cetera, and just presenting it and sort of building a brand so that people can perceive us in a way um in which they want to associate themselves so we we define the company as sort of a platform that's open-ended But we generally do apparel and right now it's mainly um, only shoelaces. But, you know, as I was saying before, a lot of time to do development during Corona. So there's a number of other other Mm -hmm. products Mm -hmm. and projects that are in the mix that will hopefully before the end of the year, um, you know, come out. So we sell shoelaces. We saw it as a as a category. Um, My partner worked at a, a massive sock company that built a really strong brand based out of Southern California. And he worked there and I basically just went to visit him while I was uh, at the portfolio company because I was on business in California at the time I was living in New York. of just shooting the breeze and it ended up getting into a much more serious conversation. And he's like, I love it here, um, but I feel like I could do this myself. And he's more of a marketing and networking guy, you know, good relationships with celebrities, athletes, influencers. And I was sort of the, uh, the finance and business. And then we brought on another partner who is also, he's an you know, accountant CPA. Um, and the three of us just sort of got together and, you know, we had another partner at the time who um, we're hoping to bring back on eventually, but just obviously when you're an entrepreneur, you're not really getting paid well. And he had multiple kids who uh, he was like, I'm not ready to jump on this full time. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, so we, yeah, so we, uh, we started um, just, you know, my, my father has relationships with China. That's his business, but he doesn't generally do premium apparel products but he was able to connect us through his sourcing agent there and you know, it's actually been nice, you know, working with my dad, a different dynamic to our relationship. Yeah. Um, And he's great. You know, he's the type of dad who's like, I don't care to make money on this. I just want to like, you know, spend more time with my kid in a, in a different way. So, um, so yeah, we started, technically the idea came about in 2016, um we self-funded at the beginning it was about 9 months um into my the pe job at, at hig where we needed to raise a, a little bit of a round and the only way to do that is if one of us was going to go full time so we got together around it wasn't so easy but we were able to raise uh, 300k and um we used that to sort of try and just build a couple of stories um, to get to the next round, and then last uh, last. So I quit in May of two thousand and eighteen. Mm-hmm. And then in July of two thousand and nineteen, we closed our seed round from one investor. We raised a million dollars um, to be able to just take things to the next level. Um, mm-hmm. Very strong strategic you know investor aside from being a financial investor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And now where we stand is we're still moving, still going forward, but you know a lot of what we launched um, since July, it was starting to come out now in like February and March. So things are obviously slow. It's not the best time, Mm -hmm. but we're pushing forward and still, you know, moving through it. But like I said, um, things are slower until this passes, but they're not slower in terms of what's going on behind the scenes and just giving us an opportunity to regroup and come up with other products or other strategies, et cetera. Cool.
0: Yeah. So I want to dive in a little more to that story, but let's go all the way back to undergrad. So you went to, you said Queens, right? Baruch. Yeah. I went to Queens. Yeah. So you, Were there, did you know, you said there was a little bit of kind of, you're a little bit naive or when you first kind of graduated, you didn't know what to go into and you were just thinking a good job, any job is is good. Was accounting always on the radar? Was finance on the radar? Like, when did you figure out, okay, now I have this accounting job, I want to pivot and then eventually get to middle office at RBC. Like, when did that come on the radar?
1: Yeah. So, you know, growing up, there's the kids in school who are super motivated and those that are not um i was very motivated socially and very motivated you know to be spending and maximizing my time you know with friends etc and you know a few of my other friends a few of my other friends were just significantly when i say smarter i don't mean necessarily intellectually smarter just were preparing themselves and you know those are the ones that got into the good schools but i just didn't care enough and it was because i was just an immature kid until Um, right after high school i went to study abroad Um, i studied abroad in israel for about a year and a half Mm -hmm. and while i was there it's literally nothing specific besides for just a maturity switch of like all right i'm gonna eventually have to get serious and figure out what i want to do and i went through what a lot of people go through where it's like i have no idea what i want to do i don't even know what i'm good at and how could i know what i want to do without trying something Mm -hmm. so my uh my dad was very much uh involved in influencing me. My dad, like I said, he works with China and he does sales. He doesn't do anything within accounting or finance, but he guided me and just said, it's a tough economy right now. And the safest jobs are those in accounting. And it's just a really good place to start. And if I wanted to even try and get a finance job at that point, it would not have been, you know, a a great one um, because of, you know, what the economy was like. And because, you know, coming out of Queens College, you can get solid jobs, but you're not going to get the top most prestigious jobs. So at that point, I was just like, I'm gonna go with this because it's what's being recommended to me. it's safe. I did enough research. hopefully I like it, and if I don't, I'll learn something and then hopefully along the way, which ended up being true is you figure out what you like and the sort of the feelings that you have, whether they're conscious or subconscious, sort of guide you into just trying new things and you know for me, that was probably more extreme than most. I've you know pushed myself and battered myself all around within different accounting groups and you know. It was a worry of mine that people look at your resume and say, oh, you bounce from this group to that group group and this firm to that firm. And there is something to be said about that. But it was way more important for me to get my, my feet wet, you know, in a lot of different things. So I was pushing through accounting for that reason. Um, from day one, I was like, I don't even know how to be a professional. And I don't, you know, I don't enjoy, um, you know, this accounting stuff very much. I just knew right away. I was like, this just isn't going to be a fit. But I was like, learn whatever you can. Mm-hmm. So I learned whatever I could, was looking for jobs randomly, probably within six months in. Um, and then by the end of the year, I had landed a job at another, another place where just through a, a family friend, I ended up getting in touch with the managing partner and he pitched it really well. Can you imagine a managing partner pitching uh, a super young guy? He wasn't doing it for the firm. He was doing it for me. Um, you know, so... But tell uh, me
0: why, why even make that jump when it's just another accounting firm?
1: So at that point, I didn't know if it was accounting. I didn't know a specific type of work. I was in uh, the nonprofit um, audit group. Okay. So I was like, okay, maybe these companies just aren't as sexy as I'd like, you know. Right. Um, I, I didn't believe that necessarily to be true, but I was like, just maybe, maybe it's the environment, maybe I need to get out. And and I ended up really enjoying the culture a lot more, um, the social culture just within, you know, I was at J.H. Cohn, which is now Cohn Resnick, also a sized firm. Um, just really enjoyed it. It was in the tax group to start. I had good friends, people who were guiding me and I learned quite a bit, but after about six months within there, I was again, just like, I don't see myself doing this. So then it was like, I want to get into finance, but I don't know what. And my only way to get into finance right now that I can think of is to switch into an accounting group within the firm. It's an easy step. But why, why,
0: why why were you thinking I want to get into finance? Just because you had heard the trajectory was was more rapid like the pay was better what was the what were the things yeah like, it was as a young guy like you know having done a couple of years of accounting at this point or a year and a half you were at that second firm and be like eh, this is still not gonna be for me long term was it that or was it just it seemed like a natural thing where you could kind of leverage your accounting background
1: um it was a little bit of both um it was leveraging my accounting background it was also just like like faster track you learn supposedly again this was saying supposedly because i didn't know at the time did you have any mentors uh,
0: like guiding you anybody there that was like you should get into banking or try to make
1: not at rbc but i did have friends um who at the time i looked at as just much smarter than me and much you know more higher achievers and people who i would have dreamed to be in their shoes um which is nice because i ended up you know not being necessarily in their exact shoes but you know followed enough in, in the past to be able to just that experience but it was it was a money thing just long-term money it was also like i don't know if i'll love it but if i'm gonna be miserable i'd rather be making more money than less money um and i also making knew, what like
0: 50 to 60k at a, at these law firms as an accountant something like that
1: as an accountant i started off at i think 54 and yeah. then had gone up to somewhere in the 60s yep sounds about right um and then uh in the yeah, middle and office
0: so, middle office you called it like you know product control analyst or whatever, doing some sort of accounting for RBC, was that like a jump up to 70 or mid 60s plus a small bonus? Yeah, I think
1: it was low 70s. Yep. Okay. Um, so it was nice to get, get right. a pay bump and yep. it was a lifestyle bump. And just like, you know, it was, it was and a now good
0: you're, move. Now you're at the firm where you can potentially make that, that next critical jump.
1: Exactly. And and like I told you when I was like, in terms of confidence, I was never an incompetent person, but I just always placed myself and said you are here and there are some people who just achieve way more and it wasn't even like feeling bad for myself where it's like oh i can't achieve what they have it's just like just know your role you know and and yeah. obviously that wasn't good in hindsight um but you know because i've been able to see what i've been able to achieve you know without that but that was really sort of the mentality and and you know it was just for a whole bunch of reasons i also knew that people in banking if i can get in there i'm going to be around the smartest people on people who I felt were smarter than me. And it's like, I'm going to learn something. And it's like, even if I don't make it through, it's like, at least I will have gotten that experience. One, have it on the resume, speak to it. So, you know, I was very, very aggressive when I got into my product control role at RBC. So much uh, so that.
0: How early first, did you start like pushing to get to a banking role? Cause that, that could be really touchy, man. What aren't the, like the direct people who hired you for the middle, for that, for that accounting role at RBC kind of pissed.
1: So this is what I, what I talk about in terms of luck. Yeah. Um, the head of my group um, was a really, really, really good guy. And he was tough on you to make sure you're working hard and that you're doing a good job. This is the perfect balance. And when you could have in a boss, he like pushes you, also gives you, doesn't pressure you, doesn't micromanage. You know, he's sort of like, do what you need to do, kind of throw you to the fire. And like, I'm here to help if you have questions. Yeah. Um, I remember I had my first annual review three months in just because of the timing of when I joined and in that meeting i just don't know what came over me i basically said i was like i really enjoy this group and i enjoy working here like you know in 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 this capacity but i am just letting you know that i have been reaching out aggressively to people in the front office to try and get into one of those roles and the reason why i said that is just because i had just i I felt like I really needed to be honest with him, even though it was putting myself at risk. And it ended up working in my favor because he, he sort of laughed a little bit. And he said, it doesn't happen that often, mm-hmm. but I truly respect your motivation. And he's like, if it does work out for you, that's great. And it also looks good on us because it shows what these can turn into. Right. And if it doesn't, then just like lesson learned. But he was just super supportive about it. And like looking back, it's like I would never tell somebody to do what I did. <laughs> but the fact that I did it just like, it really, you know, it's just, you're able to see that like, yeah, he cares about his group, but he also realizes like, I'm a lower employee in his group. Like if I leave, it doesn't change that much. And it's not a disrespect to his group. It was just like, I wanted to be able to take on and learn something new and different. And he was just, you know, there should be more bosses and employees like him.
0: Was there any pushback in terms of like, okay, fine, you can do that, but you got to be here for at least a year. Did he say anything around timing? He's like, Mm -hmm. we can't just hire you and you jump six months later, you know? Was there anything? No, like,
1: I, I think he was more like, or he didn't think you'd not, not like not you would yeah. yeah, know, it's not going to happen. He's meaning, like, yeah. It's not going to happen. It was like, do. if it does, then like you deserve it. So like yeah. if that happens in a month, you know, whatever it is. So that was three months in, um, at that time I was just so set on like it happening. But around that time is when I was, I remember I was meeting meeting with uh, someone from HR who was very, very tough, um, on me, but in general, just like typical banking, just very, very, like we have a very high expectation, and we sat during a meeting and, you know, very intimidating. And I was just like giving her all my reasons and just, she was questioning me and stuff like that. And she just looked at me in the face and she was just like, you're not ready. And I was just like, okay. And like, in my mind I was like, you might be right, but like, I want my shot now, but like, I didn't say anything. So she gave me some advice and the next few months I what spent. What was
0: that? What was that advice? Was it like go back and learn financial modeling? Like what was, what was she telling you to do?
1: Yeah, it was, you need, it was, you right. need to learn, you know, the technical stuff and you need to be just as good, if not better than anybody else who's gonna be in your position. Yep. And two, like, you know, you have to realize that this is not just something that every day people do. And even if you are potentially qualified, you can't just keep demanding it and forcing it to happen because it's just, you know, it, it's just not that easy. Yep. Um, so she had just said like, also in my confidence, the way I was saying things, it was all this stuff was new to me. So when I was answering her questions, there was just, it's, you know, I don't lie very well. So you kind of like see that it's just like, I'm sort of faking a little bit until I make it, which is all I can do at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and How then, are you uh, prepping
0: for these like HR meetings? Would you suggest people like prep for it as if it's like an actual investment banking interview? Was she like, obviously she was asking you like the, well, why? And like, you know, what do you think that's going to do? And why do you think you should be a, you know, all those kind of more behavioral side, but was there, were there any like technical questions about like financial modeling? Was she doing that?
1: Yeah, but nothing like very deep. It was just like high level things, just like walk me generally through these types of models, which you, if you're going into an investment banking interview and you don't know by heart, like, and you yeah, should reconsider. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember I think after, so it was three months and then two months later, probably five months in, um, I got an opportunity to interview actually, and I didn't get it. It was not for an analyst class. It was for um a financial for a fig investment banking group someone had quit and they needed the help and so they gave me an opportunity very tough guy very tough interview but he was asking me some like relatively basic looking back questions on present value not like what is present value but just simple stuff that like i should have and you know had to know and i was just i was like aggressive in the interview too but like to a point where like i made sure to like you know chill and not overstep my boundaries but he basically told me before it was even over without even relating to hr he's just like you're not ready for this. You need to understand these concepts. So I got lucky that I actually was shut down a couple of times, but hmm. because of the way I did it, I was able to get another opportunity. And then I think it was another three months so, or four months. So finally nine months you, in is when you everything happened. think after happened. that
0: second time where you kind of were shut down, did you think it's not going to happen or did you doubt yourself or you were just confident that like, if I keep pushing, I'm going to get there?
1: There's no, yeah, I had a ton of doubt. Like there was self doubt. Like It doesn't sound
0: it, like it by the way you are talking with them.
1: Yes, but it, it, was, it was almost like I don't have anything to lose. So try until the point whether you feel like you're really overstepping and people are getting annoyed with you or that you just like actually have technical failure or you just get thrown. I, was, I told myself, I was like, this is so important to you. You don't want to get fired. But if you do get fired for these reasons, you're not going to regret it. So you feel I feel like
0: you had enough of like you were good enough with like reading people that you, you would know kind of when you started crossing that line.
1: Yes, but it's not just a, a very clear line. There's a lot of gray. So once you start entering into the gray, which I think I did, it's you don't know. And there's also different people who have different thresholds for what they're willing to, to take. Yeah. So um, I, I never overstepped. Um, I was called out on overstepping in a way that was almost in a good way. I remember this is actually interesting. You'll probably get a laugh from this. Once I got the offer to join the investment banking class, it was uh, I think it was June. And the class was starting in August. So HR, like, I went to speak with HR and I told them, I was like, is it okay if I take two months off to travel before I enter into this? And uh, the words that she used was literally an HR woman. She's just like, you have some balls. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I basically said, I was like, listen, I understand if I, if I can't, you know, if I'm not granted that, it's not me demanding it, it's me asking. And if not, I'm more than happy to stay to do what I need to do but just like I'm entering into a time where I'm not going to be able to do this. And it just gives me an opportunity. And she said, she's like, it's very reasonable. Just so let me just confirm with some people. She, uh, she got back to me like an hour later and I booked the trip like five days later to go no to way. Thailand and Japan. I went for just for like three weeks. That's Cause amazing. I wanted to like prepare, but yeah, I went by myself. I had met up with some acquaintances there, but yeah, that was awesome also just getting the opportunity to, to have like free and clear mind. Don't worry about a job and just travel, you know, aimlessly.
0: And so, you—how much time did you actually get off before that? Um, like, I know you did a three-week trip, but was it like a full two months before you like? Yeah, you it, was,
1: it was. It uh, was no. It was like six weeks. So it was like the middle That's of so June. Amazing. So yeah, That's, it was great. So unheard of, man. Yeah, I traveled. <laughs> of course, yeah, I appreciate. it. I mean, I traveled for about half of it, and then I was just sort of home, figuring out, you know, moving apartments, finding, you know, just taking care of all things I needed to do. But great. yeah, it was it was an awesome opportunity.
0: So you finally make it, tell me what the feeling was like when you, when they finally, like, you were entering into that, that interview process and you're kind of getting through it. You're probably more prepared. You're doing well. Did you think like, I got this this time, I'm going to get it? Or what was the thought process like when they called you up? Were you jumping off the wall or what was it? Like?
1: Yeah, so I was saying before about interview experience, like even if you know you're not going to get a job, you know, in PE when you're in banking or whatever it is, it's just take the interview. Yeah. And there were some interviews, especially at the beginning, where I was just like, I would just smile in the middle and basically be like, without saying it, like, I know I'm not getting this and I know I'm failing this miserably. And they kind of understood that. And they were like, good work, just work on these two things and like come back, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of the same thing with, uh, with everything. As I, the first time I tried, I was not as confident, but I grew more and more confident. So mm-hmm. they HR the first time and they rejected me. Then I got an interview and then they rejected me and I was just like, all right, if I can keep on getting opportunities, I'll be prepared. Um, and a meeting with all of the bankers all the way up from analyst to MD, they basically gave me every resource, I actually have a Dropbox, um, with a lot of stuff in it, not necessarily everything, but basically I can just, you know, a lot of people have reached out to me because they see Queens College and investment banking and they're just like, all right, this really seems like a unique route. So I share this Dropbox with them and it just has a lot of the resources that I use to get smart. And I was able to ask people questions about things that I couldn't understand. So I had the resources that, you know, at my discretion. So I was able to leverage it. So once they called me up and said, you have an interview tomorrow, you know, for a super day. And I was like, Oh my God, like, I can't screw this up. And I was also like, dude, like you're ready, you know, like you're, you're ready to take this next step and you're, you know, just do it. And so I'm, I'm not going to lie. I went in and I was very scared, but I knew what the, Construct the construct of the interview is going to be they also told you a little bit about it what it was And I was able to speak to other analysts to get an idea of what it was So I over prepared in a way that you know, I did perfectly fine. So it's three interviews um, MD VP or MV MD and two VPs and I Crushed all of them and I knew I crushed all of them, but I just was hoping that was enough So it wasn't like I, I walked out confident like you're getting it. Yeah, um, the MD, you know, I sent a thank you note after, and he responded to me and like said great work. And at that point, I was like, all right, that's a really good sign. Usually, they don't respond, um, and to respond and say that—not that I knew, but I was just like, okay. And then I think it was a day later where they called me up, and I was just like, holy cow! Yeah, the feeling is is great because if you set your mind out to do something, you doubt yourself the whole time. Yeah, and you know, then you get it, and it's. It's funny because there's some of my friends who like went to really good schools, they just get these jobs easily, you know? So it's just like, oh my God, what that mean what it means to me. And now it's funny looking back on that, it's like the levels of confidence that I've surpassed because of all the op, the 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 things that I've had to put myself through, I, I'm obsessed with continuing to achieve and getting to the next level. And so once I got into private equity, I was already at the point where I was like, All right, now I gotta start my own company and do it my own way, you know? So it's very obvious trends, you know, within me to, to key my, to, to see myself continuing to achieve, you know, and setting goals. And once you break those goals and reach those goals, you know, you set onto others.
0: You mentioned a lot about like networking internally and how that was really successful. You had like a 50% hit rate in terms of people actually taking your call and then a 75% conversion from there to actually getting a coffee chat, which is insane. Um, did you have any similar success outside of RBC or was it? Were or, or you just 100% focused on just staying within the
1: firm? Um, the success outside the no, I wasn't. I was willing to take anything, but I just knew I had an advantage. Um, it is absolutely night and day being having an email handle within the bank
0: mm-hmm. versus
1: reaching out from any other email address. I have the same conversion rate that everybody else does. There's no magic, there are, there's a lot of advice you can give and all of that advice gives you like a marginal 0.1% chance improvement of getting somebody to answer you like no one will people get too many emails what do you think not the hit rate what do you
0: think the hit rate is on on like cold uh, linkedin and then cold emails
1: it would not shock me that <clears throat> that if you reach out to 100 people um, you would get maybe five responses. Some people might get more and let's say you do get more. I'd say, also be,
0: I'd say the connection rate is closer to 20. If you structure it well, in terms of like an actual connection, like you say, Hey, I noticed you have this da 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 da.
1: Oh yeah. If you have a connection, it's a little bit different rather like, than what oh, I you was doing.
0: My, you went to my school or you, you know, you're from my city, something like that. I think it can be yes. closer to 20, 20. So
1: yeah, I, I, I have LinkedIn, like I've just been the guy who's try to maximize connections just because once you have a connection, even if you don't know the person, it's like, Oh, they're connected. So they have some sort of, so I have like 2000 connections on LinkedIn. I know probably 10% of those people, but yep. people have asked me for intros. I've asked people for intros and it's helpful, but I'm talking more about at the time I was using LinkedIn, but I was also using like just company emails because a lot of people, especially the senior people at banks or people at banks don't provide their email cause they don't want to be bothered. Mm-hmm. So you have to find the email, the format of how the emails are done. Mm-hmm. And for every person, try three different formats, whether it's first letter or first name and then last name or the whole name or dot. And you try a bunch of formats, you do it with all the people you see, you send it out and, you know, some people might respond. Yeah, a lot we of actually those have res-
0: email formats in the company database for, for lists. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So for every company, if you go in there, it'll say first dot last at whatever right? Goldman 's. Oh,
1: so that's that's extremely helpful because then yeah. you know you're getting through to people. It's just a matter yeah. of like, okay, then they're not, you know, they're just not answering me, but. Yeah. yeah, when you're outside and you're just randomly emailing somebody, I didn't get responses very often. And if I did, most of them were like, you know, yeah, we'll meet for coffee or like let's connect later on or like, you know, it's just it's, blowing you it's off. very Yeah, and, and I particularly feel a little bit more of an obligation to answer those emails when I get them, just to pay it forward. Yeah. But even then, if too many people reach out to you, it's just it's an it becomes a yeah. distraction from your day. So it's I I can understand that a lot more now, you know, than, yeah. than I did at the time. But it's just like, people just don't have the time to answer every email, you know?
0: Yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're having a lot of success within the firm anyways. So you're kind of doubling down there, you're meeting a ton of anchors and you're kind of getting resources. You're getting kind of prepped. At what point do you feel like you've, you're ready? Like you, you said, you had a whole spreadsheet kind of, um, tracking how the conversations went. What do you feel like you obviously got better as you did more of these like networking chats with, with people, Do you have any advice for the listeners for who are like let's say in the middle or back office and they're trying to do these types of coffee chats, which may be a little awkward, where like the banker probably knows, okay, this kid wants like, you know, eventually transition. How do you how do you make it a success or like a ranked at 10 on your scale or however you did it? What was what was that?
1: So number one is is arming yourself with information. So whatever extent you possibly can, whether it's Google searches or just even You know, even having access to Wall Street Oasis, like there's just so many things that you can utilize and learning the skills over time, just understanding at a very high level what the models are, what an an analyst needs to know on his first interview. But most importantly with that, you're not looking to meet up with somebody and show them how much you know. That's usually a common mistake and people will throw out words to like think that they have common ground. It's like I can say DCF and I know what it is at a high level, so now this analyst, even if he's six months in and doesn't have a lot, like that guy is not going to be impressed by hearing you say DCF. You know, he's like, so you need to be armed with that information so that when they are giving you advice or telling you what to learn or telling you how it's specifically used, you know how to use it. But when you're meeting people at, you know, analyst level, you show them a little bit more respect than you might anybody else, but also treat them as your friend where it's like you're just shooting the breeze and don't be too formal. Whereas as you go up the chain, you know, have a little personality, but just, you know, respect as you move up. So, you know, like I said, I was aggressive and at times it worked and at times it didn't, but there would be some people who would tell me a piece of advice and give me criticism and I might not take it well or not well. I would just argue against it and I'd say, what about this? And it would just be like, that's not what this is about. Like, I'm here to give, to help you. And if you want it, you can take it. And if not, not, mm-hmm. but yeah, you sort of develop your own strategy and just don't, like, don't try too hard to impress people. Mm-hmm. Just, try your hardest to show a genuine interest um, and, and know and have a number of answers as to why you want to do that. You know,
0: I love that. Yeah. I think don't, trying so hard to impress people and show that, you know, the right lingo, I think is a huge mistake. People are trying to sound mistake, yeah. too smart. I think you can, you can show your intellect and, and show that you've done the research based on the questions you ask, if they're nuanced enough so that you can do that, but it shouldn't be some BS, you know, type of question where,
1: <laughs> right.
0: There's no reason why you'd be interested in that. Like you can't really like feign like, oh yeah, I'm curious about, you know, <laughs> where pricing is on high yield, you know, whatever. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and, and, and if you ask that, it's, it ends up doing you a disservice and it almost would be better off if you didn't even meet with them because, you know. Um, and there's also the, going in with the expectation of knowing that a lot of people either won't be nice or just are going to tell you that you have no sh- and be negative or just be like, you don't want to do this. Trust me, like you don't experience it. And you have to be able to face that. So like my spreadsheet didn't say like, oh yeah, all these things were good. Some of them were like, this guy hated me. (laughs) Like try and avoid him and make sure he's not involved with you getting a job because I just had a bad feeling about that meeting. And it was like, don't reach out to him again. That's the reason why I kept a log is like to keep track of who I reached out to. Mm -hmm. When I reached out to them, how I felt the meeting went, just the temperature of the meeting.
0: So how many people did you meet with? you think overall with internally before you made the transition?
1: It was meet with, I would say maybe 40 to 50 but reached out to is probably like 200 that's insane yeah <laughs> that's
0: awesome and, yeah and some of those meetings I like it. i said
1: like like didn't go that well but like i was just like i don't know if this is going to work and that's the hardest part because you're dedicating so much of your time to making it work but i was just like the only risk is it not working like there's no other risk like it's just windows yeah
0: the bigger run rip- in finance, telling HR over and over again. <laughs> like,
1: exactly. But, but worst case, even like, obviously I did not want to get fired, especially at a young age. Cause that hits your confidence. But like, I knew I wasn't going to get fired. I, I figured I would get, have a talking to first where it's like, you need to know your role and like stay where you are and like work hard. Yeah. I didn't even get to that point. So I, I just knew I had that. And just, you know, in, everything in finance that you learn now is just asymmetric upside. And that's what it was. You know, like the downside was, most likely low probability of me being fired and the impact of me being fired wasn't even that bad when you're that, you know, young in your career. You feel like it is. More
0: likely the downside would be just like a a stern talking to like, you need to stop this. Like you're getting. Exactly.
1: And then at that point, you know, okay, I need to behave myself, you know? Yeah.
0: So, okay. So tell me a little bit about that first kind of week or in training. You're kind of a little bit older than the other analysts Were people looking at you, like, how did this kid get in here? Or was it, what was it? Whereas everyone very super friendly
1: well oh. I didn't I didn't stick out in terms of the way I look you know I yeah. wasn't I didn't, have, uh, <laughs> didn't have a gray beard, gray, gray yeah. beard like this. <laughs> yeah exactly I didn't I didn't have obviously any facial hair that was a, an absolute no-no this is actually a post-finance like I assumed, I assumed. That I, that I've <laughs> it was, a, for it was quite an while. entrepreneurial beard <laughs> exactly exactly um, so people didn't know but I would sort of you know in networking with people and just connecting I'd be like oh where'd you go to school and then people would be like oh interesting but I didn't really get a lot of disrespect. There, there probably were a bunch of people who were like, all right, this guy doesn't, won't necessarily help me as much because I want to leverage with the other guys and see what they're doing, you know, but there was not, didn't feel like there was that much judgment. I mean, I felt like I had to like prove. be a certain way. yeah, prove myself because of that. And it was, you know, true to an extent. But most importantly, I told you this was like a, a common issue for me when I was just doing it was. Again, no confidence issues, but confidence in terms of now, I feel like I've just entered a territory of people who are just a cal- step caliber higher than I am, and I therefore need to give it all in order to just do the same as they're doing in half the time or ha- whatever it is
0: and was that true? I mean, did you feel like technically you were able to ramp up I mean training's not that much time to really get ramped, but w- did you feel like all the prep you had done for the interviews at least was helpful somewhat or no
1: it was um, I definitely felt like i wasn't as prepared as some of the other guys, I felt like they knew some finance concepts. Where to me, like, I literally took finance 101 in college. You know, I had accounting and economics background, so I had to do some stuff. But like, I knew like what present value was before I started studying for these interviews. And then I obviously learned a lot from the interviews. But I still was just like I felt behind. Yeah. And again, I wasn't sure is that like because of my intellect or is that just because of a lack of skill. And mm-hmm. it's normal to have a lack of confidence, you know, in that scenario. Um, but what I did learn was that I would say for the first six months, I was probably on the lower end of my class in terms of performance, just because it was just it was a lot. It was something I had never dealt with before. I didn't go to a high commanding university either. It was relatively easy. The hours must have been brutal and the stress must have been really high at those first six Yeah, months. it was stress. And it was also like, I don't know if I can meet this deadline because I don't know how to do the work. And there's only so many questions I could ask and how much spoon feeding I can get. Yeah. So a couple of people spoke to me within my first six months and were like, oh, you know, the other analysts are outperforming you and this and that. And I was it scared me, but I like to hear that, you know, I like to be aware. Um in the next six months I, I picked up the pace a little bit to where I was still lower performance, ended up getting there was five buckets of bonuses. I got the second to lowest and like sort of wasn't upset with that because I was just like, I'm happy to that they're just that means I can continue, you know? Do
0: you mind sharing? Let's so say like your base is what? Like 80 or 90 or something? And then you're.
1: Um, my base, my salary in my first year was right before they changed. Up. I don't know if they've changed it since, but they like shifted more to salary from bonus. Got it. So I think my salary might've been, you know, in the 70 range and yep. then bonus was somewhere around, I would say 90 to hundred percent of that.
0: Okay, so even in the second lowest bucket, was that
1: yeah, I, I would take that with a grain of salt because I was obsessed with that at the time, but I just don't really remember, which is crazy how, yeah. how long it's been. Um, but it was that, it was in the low 100s all in, um, okay. even with my you know relatively lower bonus. Now I think bases are a little bit higher and bonuses a little bit you know smaller. Yep, um, so I'd gotten the second to lowest bucket, they didn't tell me that, but obviously it's very easy to figure out once you go and talk to the other analysts. And then the, the next year, the first six months, I was, I felt that I was performing, you know, as average. Mm-hmm. And the last six months is when um, one of the analysts, he was an analyst that should have been a VP. He was an absolute all-star, was yeah. able to learn under him. He had patience, you know, he was just a really good guy. And like, yeah, he'd make fun of you, but like he was very good and like allowed you almost to work underneath him. And like I grabbed every opportunity. Then he quit, then he quit and went to HIG in Miami, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was able to work directly for the MD that he was working. And I was like, I am not ready for this, but I'm not going to get another opportunity like this. And it was, it was amazing. Like the, the MD that I worked for was a very tough guy, but he also like, if you did stuff wrong, even if it was stuff that he knew that you shouldn't necessarily know yet, he's like, if you want the responsibility of acting like an associate or VP on a deal, he didn't even have to say this, it was just like, Then you've got to be able to perform otherwise i'm more than happy to bring someone over you and he didn't say that again but i I felt it and i just worked even harder you know my hours during that year were crazy um the market was a little bit lighter in that year so the first year analysts were actually not getting a great experience but i was still working those crazy hours because i was going through commitment papers and and you know loan documents to be able to be like i need to put together a summary on this and i don't even know what half the things mean so it's just like i was able to leverage our lawyers and You know, to be able to have them explain it to me and the nice ones were, you know, would explain it to me in detail and it's just having that experience is what really, you know, pushed me up. So by the end of my second year, I knew that I was towards the top of the class. And when we had my bonus conversation, I was given middle bucket and I basically said, again, my aggressive side was like, thank you, I appreciate it, but I felt that I was a little bit of a higher performer. And they basically said the second half of the year you were, but the first half of the year you weren't. And I was like, "You're going to pay me based on that." <laughs> There's something that is fair about that, but it's also like something that's really annoying about that. Yeah. Um, and then in my third year, I knew that I was towards the top of my class. I mean, granted, a lot of people had already left at that point. Yeah. Um, but I was performing just you know to the same level. Um, as I felt the top performers were you know better than some so once I that was a huge achievement to feel for me because then it was like my confidence just got even higher and then it's like I can do what I want now and that's when I start. I remember in my second year somebody had left to start their own company and I was like are you crazy like you're you're on a trajectory to make such good money and you're just walking away to start your own thing and like it just doesn't make sense to me. That just speaks to how risk averse I was and the way I was brought up to just be like, you know, you have to, you know, if you find something work hard and just be a hard worker. And then it's just funny how looking back now, I was not only that guy, I I didn't take a salary for my first year. Um, but yeah, I basically made it till just at the end of my third year. Um, and I was offered the associate, Um, offer and I accepted it because I thought I was going to stay until HIG to the following year. And I didn't tell anybody internally that I got an offer besides for the people that I had set up to, to give a, um, you know, they, they, in banking, they don't care about your employees knowing, and it's good because the cultures usually accept that, but I had to give them three or four names of people who they can get recommendations from and referrals and they asked them for referrals. So everyone that I'm knowing anyway, um, but I signed it and then literally a few days later, I ended up taking it back because HIG came to me and said, we have this opportunity to work at portfolio companies. So they were annoyed at that. They're like, you just accepted, you know, at least, you know, to be an associate. We thought you were going to be here long term. And it's just like, you know, and I, I didn't feel bad, you know, at all.
0: (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) you know, now that you had already done a third year analyst, They, they were giving you an associate promote. if you stayed for like another year kind of thing?
1: Well, it was associate promote, like now you're a full-time employee. It was no longer like a one-year contract. It was like the expectation was you're with us forever. Um, gotcha. And so I signed that. And so they were like, okay, now we have like a good core, whatever. And then leaving, it's just, we were a relatively small group. So there was only like. A couple of associates or whatever. Yeah. Like what is more, there was like six or seven, but like three of us were coming in from the analyst class. And a lot of the associates that come in from um, MBA, um, I know the MBAs are not going to be happy to hear this, but you will never catch up as an MBA associate. (laughs) You will not catch up to any decent analyst who started three years before me and before you. And it just, it makes sense. Like they know the group, they know how things work. And yes, you have a different skill that you bring, but it doesn't matter enough in the context of where you are now. And it was very frustrating. I guess this is a message to some people who come in as an MBA associate. There were certain people who knew it and they were like, dude, like, I'm here to work under you, like, teach me, you know? Yeah. And there's other people who are just like trying to push authority because like, I'm above you. And I was like, that's not going to bother me. It's going to annoy me, but it's just going to play poorly for you because I'm going to end up either pushing the work on you and you're going to get in trouble because you're not going to have it the way it's supposed to be, or you're going to lean on me and I'm going to sort of, you know? Yeah. So, um,
0: yeah. In terms of like them trying to like, assert their even though they, they were associates, they felt superior because they had the MBA, you feel like um, Yeah, certain.
1: and the fact that they were an associate, they were just like, all right, I know like you're not happy about me coming in above you, but I was fine. Like I don't mind I don't care about a title or whatever it is. It's just like you need to understand that if you're gonna want to run this, you're not gonna do as good a job as Forget me, forget any, anyone who's been here for two to three years because we just know our system better than you.
0: Yeah, and you, you've been working crazy hours, 80 plus hour weeks for
1: yeah, and years. So exactly, and in, like- in the longer <laughs> run, in the longer run, it might benefit you, that fact that you got the MBA. So in three years, you might then be ahead of me because you had three years less of experience, but you had what you needed and now you have this MBA plus you know other different experiences. So you might, but in the meantime, like, there's, no, you know, there's no way.
0: No, I think that's a well-known thing is, is the post MBA associates coming to banking, especially if they didn't do banking pre MBA, it's usually a really tough role for, for people to, because especially when they have to go work with experienced analysts, if they don't like bow down to them, it, it can be very ugly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> another, another piece of advice I would give to someone in that position or in just coming in as an analyst is people will be on you the second you do anything that is not up to their highest demand. So you are going to be criticized, but m- most of the time you need to realize that there is a lot more leeway in terms of you losing your job that you shouldn't just get discouraged and say like, all right, it's been two weeks and I've been yelled at for every single deliverable I've given. As an it's, analyst, you mean coming in? Yeah, analyst or even if you're a brand new associate and that might happen, yeah. but yeah, this is for both equally. It's, there is a lot more leeway. They actually prefer not to fire you because it looks bad, And if you're horrible, they usually unless you're so bad, they need to get rid of you right away. But if you're like even just bad and not great, they're gonna probably hold you until your two years is up and then just not give you a thirty year offer. Right. So that should just give most people like once you're in the door, just take advantage. And as long as you work hard, you will not get respect, but you will not be removed for most likely from your position and you'll be able to get the time you need to advance.
0: No, I agree with that. I mean, I think if I look back in my analyst class at Rothschild, there was twelve of us and I think, you know, people knew who was who was working hard and who wasn't, and it came pretty it became pretty obvious he said who was actually working on live deals and who was stuck on these like middling pitches with right. no hope of going right. there. Um, but yeah, man, the learning curve was brutal for me come I came out of liberal arts college, so it was like I knew nothing coming out of training, nothing yeah, I had no interest or anything
1: it's, um, it's shocking like when you get in there, you're like, how do they have this expectation, but then you realize to the point I was saying before is like they expect you but they also give you the leeway to be able to make it so it's just like just try your hardest and try definitely try not to piss people off Mm -hmm. and like you know don't be so aggressive and for the most part when it came to that i was very quiet did not like there were a few times where i might have been out of line just like i feel like most people were but you just take it whatever it's coming from it makes you better even if it's done in the wrong way you know it's it's just like and it doesn't matter what their intentions are it just matters that You know, there were some people that I worked with that I didn't really like as people, but they were just so good at what they did and learning under them just changed my career. It really, it really did, you know?
0: So awesome. So, okay. So you're kind of coming into that third year, you get the associate offer, you sign it, then you kind of renege on it because you get the HIG offer to leave early and you're like, Hey, I'd rather, rather than continue to do reps in investment banking, let me go get this new kind of interesting experience trying to sell this company for HIG, um, so you do that for a year. Tell me what was the transition like there. And then specifically once you actually started in private equity.
1: So the transition was great because like it was casual attire. I was in uh, you know, m- most of the personalities, or at least I was in an office and the company was based out of um, Winnipeg in Canada. Okay. But I was, they had been bought out by, um, but when they were bought up by HIG, they removed the management team that was in Winnipeg. And they hired people within the New York, New Jersey area, actually all in New Jersey. So they had a small office in Montclair, New Jersey. So thankfully, I did not have to move to Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah, you <would> um, have... <laughs> no, no offense to, <laughs> to Winnipeg. Any Canadians
0: um, in Winnipeg. Yeah, I, I had
1: gone there twice. Um, it's a cool place to visit. But like, yeah, I would not have wanted to live there coming out of New York City yeah. um, for a year long or 10 months long. Um, but you know, the CFO and the CEO were both like type A, but they were also like, just very culturally different when they're like older and they've been doing these jobs for a long time. There's just like, oh, we talk about our families and we talk about our friends. And like, it's just like the CFO is like really chill. Um, you know, she would like, just ask me my personal life and also just like, tell me, like, sit down, like, let's just talk for two hours and like, Mm -hmm ask me what you want you know and she was just she was just a good mentor um she was very very sharp as a boss sharp in terms of intellect but also sharp in terms of like especially when things were under pressure it's like i need this i need this done now and i need it done right and if she doesn't believe you can do it she'll give up on you which didn't really happen besides for at the very beginning but she was had me working with other people um it was surprising to see that just in an ice company based out of winnipeg that the at least at the high level You know, there was, yeah, it's driven by management teams that have worked for private equity in the past. Um, And it's just very different because it's like, they're answering to a boss and it's like, it's not only me running the company and answering to the board. It's the board is a private equity team that I just, I need to do right by them because I'm going to be one of the first things that they consider removing in order to make things better if I'm not performing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was stressful environment when, as the process got a little bit more intense, when it was just like a lot of diligence questions and how you handle it and this and that, but it was really, really, and just got so lucky to have an amazing experience because I was able to be so much part of the process. Um, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be part of the negotiation as much as I'd like to because I was not a member of the company who was staying on after, so they did not expose me at all to, they ended up selling selling to Blackstone. I was not able to really talk with them and purposefully not talk with them at all or negotiate with them at all. Um, I had some contact with the banking analysts on our sell side um, for HIG, but like I was definitely left out of that. They also didn't really want me to go to like the debt investor meetings because of that but in terms of the roadshow for you don't want
0: people to like pick your brain about the financials or something like that. Like,
1: exactly. And just like, it was like, we don't, you're not part of the company going forward. So like, we don't want anybody, you know, it's unlikely that anybody would know or care, but we just, you know, want to make sure that we're keeping an extra precaution. Got it. Um, but I did get the opportunity to go to a bunch of the management, you know, presentations where you're able to sit across management and, uh, and basically just grill them. And, you know, I mean, obviously a different way, just, You know, just digging into things and those meetings helped me significantly for HIG because a lot of analysts are scared to ask questions because they're afraid they're going to be stupid when you're in a meeting with your, you know, VP, principal and MD. And there were certain times, again, where I almost asked the most questions in those meetings because I had the experience during the management presentations. I didn't talk much during the management presentations. But I was just able to observe how things worked. And I so consistently, sometimes things were uptight. Sometimes things were very loose. It was, just, it was just an awesome opportunity. Board meetings, you know, everything like that. It was my first exposure to it. And I had more exposure to what was going on under the hood than a PE analyst who's just seeing what's going on in the meeting. So interestingly, when the relationships between the company and as in any relationship, the company and the PE firm, I was able to see both sides of it. See who's talking about who, who's saying what, who's annoyed at what. And seeing that is obviously a social business concept, meaning you're able to learn the things that aren't just technical and you're learning how people work and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting from, you know, multiple different angles. Yeah, to see
0: if being pissed that they're pushing her to do whatever. And the
1: Yeah, and like, who's right? Whose side makes sense? Do they Are they both right? This is just a matter of a frustrating time. and it, Right. It's, it's, you're able to analyze... Can you give an example, like a quick example of that?
0: Like something around like the financials of how it's being presented, something like that?
1: Yeah, it's also disagreeing on the way yeah not even necessarily presented but something could come up about the way things were being accounted for and like i was hearing both sides of the argument it was a very technical accounting argument Mm -hmm. um and it was just like oh it was displayed we're being shown this way like in order to go back and present it in the way that you want it because we're not we have to back into into things and it would be a rough figure um or it would be like Timeline needs to be updated. It's like, well, I need a week to do this, and it's like, well, we need you to do it in two days, and it's like, great. There goes my next two nights or three nights, and that's fine for an analyst in an investment bank, but when you're the CFO and you want to get home to your family, it's like this is yeah. terrible, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And there was just there was a lot of stuff like that, and like I said, the CFO and the CEO were, you know, type A, you know, just like the PE fund people. Most of them are, and it was just it was good, but it was also like butting heads. But you're just able to see like little discrepancies. You're also able to hear. When you're on one side of things, you'll be like, oh, I can't believe they did that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you hear the other side, and no, I can't believe that, and you hear people's arguments. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, in entrepreneurship, but probably in general, is the thing that you don't realize, even though people say this, but you don't realize how much more important the people element is than the actual technical knowledge and experience. Yeah. At the junior level, it's a lot less important, but in everything you do, um, especially PE, but then, 10 times more than that entrepreneurship. It's like your skills almost don't matter until the company is already functioning. Like right now I, I built a great financial model for our first our first uh, raise. Yeah. But like as I was doing it, I was cracking up. I was like assumptions in like all of these models are completely estimated as it is. Mm-hmm. Now I have something that doesn't exist yet and I'm trying to pretend what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I built a really great model. But like in my mind, I was like, if anybody challenges this, it's like, they're of course right, you know, because yeah. I know nothing and it's just, you, it's so subjective. So
0: let's pivot to that because, you know, you, you were only at HIG for a little time, for a little bit and then you started chatting with your buddies and said, Hey, I got to go create this, this, uh, laces company.
1: Yeah. So the, uh, so like the
0: why, why did you feel it was, you had mentioned somebody had seen this, like, Oh, we could do this ourselves. Like why you know, why not? There's yeah. Not so my, margin. my
1: current partner, mm-hmm. um, was working i said at a big sock company that built a really strong brand around their socks and they took off and doing great right now um and he's still working for them as a as a consultant but um he's moved on to something else and he works with us sort of um part-time like i said he's more of like the connections and like general marketing and stuff like that yep um and he's just very involved in that world it's sort of like a streetwear type brands but it's not honed in to only people who wear streetwear, it's, you know, a family oriented business as well. So I was on a trip with, um, again, they they wanted me to see the management team, gave me an opportunity. This wasn't even the PE team, it was the management team to see all the different production facilities. And you think packaged ice, that's what the company did. It's called Arctic Glacier, they sold packaged ice. Mm -hmm. You'd think like, it's frozen water, like how hard can it be? And so their best plants were in California. So I went on a business trip for a week um, into Sacramento, and then we drove all the way down to multiple different plants from there down to Oceanside, which is south of LA, mm-hmm. near, near to San Diego, actually. So we did sort of like a California road trip. Really cool guy, older guy, chill guy, and he was a manufacturing specialist. So he was basically – I was latching onto his trip because he was doing manufacturing business, but I wasn't there with really any takeaways besides for like just try and learn what you can. Mm -hmm. And it was awesome. And I actually learned that I believe right now that my the appropriate and best role for me would be an operations role with a finance mixed into it in terms of what I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, That's what I enjoy most in terms of, you know, my company now is developing the new products from scratch. Obviously, I don't have the background, the engineering background or anything, but leveraging others and just sort of being obsessed with the process really, you know, helps you learn a lot so I was there I was just asking every what every single thing was understanding like literally how ammonia is put through the pipes and how it gets hotter and colder and how they make so many pounds of ice in a day and how they deliver it in the freezer trucks and just like it was just learning the economics and really understanding the business and I've always been the type to to feel if I don't know a lot about something I'm gonna fall behind but I actually criticize people in finance because they only need to know a certain amount in order to play the game. Well, but it's just like, you don't know what you're talking about and the management team or the engineers know better and you need to take the advice from them and have it translated into financials more than just, you know, and again, I'm speaking out of two sides of my mouth because the finance game is one that is obviously proven to work and there are engineering experts within there as well. And there are operating consultants and stuff like that. But most people just are satisfied with knowing what they need to know in order to get a deal done. And I just have an intense thirst for knowledge, one, because I want to know, because I like knowing, but also because I feel like I need to be, you know, like when it comes to laces, again, you would think a lace is simple, like there's just every part of it is just complex in order to try and make a, a premium product. So anyway, so the company started, the idea came in 2016. I was on business in California and was visiting my friends um, in Oceanside. And it was just supposed to be a shooting the breeze type of lunch. Um, and we ended up just talking a lot more seriously. And it turned into, you know, starting this, this company. It was starting a company. We didn't know what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. We'd come up with like unbreakable shoelaces, which existed, but we came across a material. I won't get into too much of the detail. Yeah. Um, then we, I left his office that day and set up a WhatsApp chat with him and the two other friends. Because it was like half a joke at that point, if not more. Yeah. And I'm like, we gotta start this now. Like, let's just talk. So we got on the phone like once a week. We were talking in the WhatsApp chat. Most of that was like just fun and us again shooting the breeze did. and just yeah. making fun of each other, like, you know. And then it ended up I ended up like pushing and working with my dad to try and get samples and our first sample of the laces we ended up releasing in February. We incorporated in January twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. Our first laces in February of twenty seventeen. And they were crap, man. <laughs> I mean, it was awesome to see like a first new product, but they were, uh, they were crap. Um, So yeah, the the decision to start this was, I have an opportunity now where I feel like I have a good understanding of business at a high level. And I'm also like, I feel like I have enough of a sponge in me to be able to learn what I need to learn. You know, like most entrepreneurs that start businesses are not geniuses. A lot comes with it and it's just really working hard and trying hard. And this partner was sort of a marketing guy and he had a lot of connections. So I was like, let's start based on that. And it was very slow, especially when none of us were full time. And then we we're like, we need to raise more money with that money. We were able to get licenses for the MLB and the NBA that helped a little bit. We had a
0: what about that. Is that, isn't that tough to get those licenses?
1: Did, so it guy ordinarily guy, is it guy. ordinarily is, but this guy, yeah, he, he, he was the head of licensed sports Yeah. Where he was. So he had those relationships on tap, you know? Perfect. Um, yeah. So we were able to get them and then we didn't want to be a sports laces brand. We wanted to be like a lifestyle brand, but we wanted to have that sports, um as a component. Um and that sort of helped us. We had some one of his connections help us. We gave um, you know, we set up a partnership and engaged with him to help us get into some stadiums and just a lot of learnings. You get into the stadiums and you're put on a wall in the back or you're put on a rack with playing cards and like we have a really nice packaging and it's just like we did a, a big run and it's just like there were no sales in certain places. And then like Yankee Stadium for instance, there was just like no sales. They sold like twelve in three months. Yeah. And then we put a a nice rack in the front of the store. Like we helped, we used our connections to help us get better placement within their main store at Yankee stadium and put it on a fixture that we bought to like test out. And then we sold like 150 pair in a few games, you know, (laughs) and everything ebbs and flows. And it's just, it's really hard product to market. There's, we knew this going in, there's a lot, it's just hard to get people to change their shoelaces over their socks or whatever it is. But our target consumer was the, uh, sneakerhead community and our content has really really gotten good Mm -hmm. and our product has gotten really really good I know it's just a shoelace but like I'm proud of how far we've come in terms of printing and weaves and you know the packaging it's just it's come a really long way and so um, like I said corona right now is definitely putting a little bit of a damper on things but everyone's going through that but overall it's just it's nothing that being an entrepreneur and I'm not saying that like I call myself a want entrepreneur because until you have that first success, no. you're a wannabe you're a be until you are. Saying. But <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 living the life, you know, I took no salary for a year and now once we raised our seed round, I'm making a salary that's probably, you know, at max twenty percent of what I feel like I could be making. And it's just like, you know, that's tough and it just it takes a toll on you and some days are just like we have no chance. And some days you're just like, this is definitely going to work. And it's just, we just got to keep moving through it and keep pushing through it. And that's what
0: we've been doing. And what's next for you guys. I and mean, besides this run and once we get to the other side of, of um, Corona or whatever, are you, do you feel like it's just like, it's all distribution game, right? At that point. And what's you have the, market. well
1: it's still marketing and yeah. more importantly, branding and branding is something that's defined very differently by people, but we do our marketing in order to build our brand. Um, brand is something that I've struggled with because I believe that most people don't understand what a brand is, including myself, um, and how a brand functions. And my partners challenged me on that. I was trying to come up with something simple at the beginning, just like to put this out there and like as long as a clean aesthetic, but it's it goes so much more beyond that. And um, I'm going to quote Marty Neumeyer, who's a, a famous designer. He's worked for Apple and stuff like that, he has his own agency. Um, he basically said, it's, The brand is what's in customers' heads. So you, you're, what you say about your brand is not really what your brand is. What you're doing when you're branding is you're trying to build the perceptions in other people's heads to what you want them to be. So mm-hmm. that is a really, really complex thing because then you're dealing with people's emotions and what drives them to make purchasing decisions, especially right. on things that aren't necessary and things that just are supposed to just provide them happiness, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's just a big part of where I spend my time. And it's funny because you think you're going to take your finance skills build a model and do the accounting and it's great. And like, it absolutely helps helps me the way I think because now I think more of a business rather than someone who just has a design skill might not be able to translate it into how a business should function. So right. it's extremely helpful and necessary. But majority of my, st- my time is not spent on modeling or, you know, right. ROIs yeah. or financials. It's all, how do we market? How do we connect with people? How do we get people to buy it? So I think we're, and I'm a pretty constructive person and obviously I'm biased. I think that the place that we're at not necessarily in terms of our growth in numbers, putting that aside just because everything has been ebbing and flowing and random times it will be better. Random times it will be worse. I think that it's just, we're in a very creative mindset, you know, where we hired a new creative in October who is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been extremely helpful and we, we fight in a really good way. All of us, like we trust each other and we get on each other's throats, but in at, at the end of the day we, we are able to put our egos aside and it, it really is developing into, at times it's bad, but a lot of times developing into like a, a good culture of just trying to like put our, all our heads together to make a better company, a better brand, a better product, you know, better everything. Sounds like a blast. I mean, you're doing it with some friends, so that's like a dream. So, for a lot of people, <laughs> it's funny that you say that because it is a nightmare, also. Um, yes. The stress that comes along with it, and I know this is almost cliche to say because there's so many books about it, but like, I am going through the same things as the people who made the biggest startups in the world, but the chances of me being able to get to what they got to are so small just because of how statistics work. So when you're in this, it's so much harder. And then in 20 years, you know, and I'm a billionaire entrepreneur, I'm able to write a book. Then it'll be easy to look back and say, Oh, it was stressful. This and that. But while you're going through it, it's like, it might be for nothing. And not only for nothing, the opportunity cost of, not yep. building wealth, you know, it really takes a toll on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and also feeling helpless in times when you just feel like you don't have the right skills to be able to help in an area that you need and not knowing where to find the right people or being able to hire talent because you don't have the cash to be able to pay them the salary that they Like these things are really, really, really hard.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: having to be obligated or feeling the obligation of having investors invest in you and being responsible for what they invested in knowing, especially at an early stage, you can give them back nothing. It's just a very, very hard thing. And it took me a really long time to be able to find some stability and just accepting the extremes and trying to find a place in the middle, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I think I, I feel it too. I think I came at it a little bit differently. We, you know, not having a physical product, we never really raised any money but it was still stressful once I made
1: the leap. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I am sure I can relate. I'll tell you.
0: Um, but yeah, listen, uh, anything else you want to share with all younger listeners before we call it? Do you know any, any advice or advice to your younger self?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I'm, I'm in a place where I think in 10 years I'll have hopefully more advice to give. I'm not, I'm not yet successful to the extent that people, other people might not see it, but I had the excess, the success that I needed to be in. Everybody's different, but I, I think most importantly is understand how risk-reward works and use it to make decisions, but don't let other, people, let other people influence you, but don't let them influence you in a way where they're going to make the decision for you. Mm-hmm. You need to use other people to, to develop an understanding of how your world will work to the extent you could possibly know it. And the risk-reward of me jumping out of a private equity job when I worked my ass off to get it and start a new company, most of my friends were just like, I'm actually willing to invest in you because you're that crazy. The risk reward doesn't make sense. But to me, the risk reward is my life. It's, I don't want to look back and regret it. So if I end up failing, which I might fail once, I might fail twice, but I believe in the end, those things will help me succeed. And I still believe that even on my worst days. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really just about understanding that the risk reward for me was it's such a big risk to not do this because I will always live with the regret of not doing it. So looking at it a financial risk reward is kind of silly. And I also built up enough enough of a background where there's so many things that I can do within finance or startups and everything like that. Like the skills that I've learned from an entrepreneur is one, the emotional side of it, but two just having to just think of everything on your own and being fully responsible. And so I would just, yeah, just tell people to just really think for yourself and, assess your world in the way that you want to and whatever makes you happy, but also look down the line to make sure that you're going to keep yourself consistently happy, you know, over time.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for taking the time to share your wisdom with, with everybody here.
1: Yeah. It's not much wisdom yet, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for, uh, thanks so much for having me, you know, letting me spew a little bit. Um, no, good.
0: And thanks to you, my listeners at wall street oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.